Yeah, I mean, I think there's a VC so Slack channel, and you know, there's there's people coming in there every week going, I've hung up my. CISO business card and I'm now coming to do this. And that's a lot of reasons why they want to do it. I mean, it is not an easy job being in charge of information security as a full-time person. You know, it's not an easy job. You're constantly fighting battles. You're sometimes in a position where they don't really want a security person. They've just been told they have to have one. From Exabeam, this is the new CISO a show about the people who lead IT security teams, the challenges they face, and how they overcome them. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to hear our new episodes first. I'm Steve Moore, and today I speak with Laura Luthan, VCISO at Angel Cybersecurity. Born and raised in Britain, Laura moved to LA after university to explore new opportunities. What came next involved scuba, can-can, and eventually IT. Laura worked at Equifax and Sephora before going into business for herself as a VCISO. Now she joins us to cover her self-sufficient approach to cybersecurity. Whether you're just getting started in cybersecurity or rounding out a long career, you have power over your next step. So how can you embrace challenges but avoid struggles? How should you tackle likability when applying for jobs and negotiating salary? And what questions should you ask before taking on a new role? Laura, thank you so much for joining us today. For those that might not know you, please introduce yourself if you would. Yeah, hi there. This is Laura Luthan, and I am the only person in Angel Cybersecurity. I'm a virtual CISO, and I've been doing that for about five years now, five and a half years. Now, you didn't start there. I can remember when we met first, you had a very kind of eclectic intro that you gave me that's, that's beyond what you mentioned. You mentioned your studies, and I think you lived in Florida for a scuba instructor. Introduce us a bit to that, because I think it is a bit of foreshadowing into present day, Laura. So give us a taste of that. Sure. So I actually, I grew up in Britain and I, after I graduated, I lived in London for a few months and I just decided that it wasn't for me at the time. And I left and I moved to Los Angeles, which I decided was even less for me. And then I went to go and work at Club Med for two years, which is a fun experience for everybody. I think everybody in their 20s should go and work at Club Med for a little bit. And you learn how to speak French and I was a scuba instructor and do things like can-can on a Friday night. And it was just a really fun experience to spend some time just being in the outdoors, but working very hard. You actually work very hard when you work in places like that. And then I came back to Florida where my mother was living and I was based in Florida for a little bit. And I just couldn't get a job. Nobody cared that I had a fancy degree and nobody cared that I was a scuba instructor. And so I ended up doing a lot of temping and I was temping, answering phones, doing spreadsheets, just doing nothing very interesting. And finally, I got given a full-time job by this company as an office manager, and I was doing collections. I was very bad at doing collections. But this was in the kind of mid to late 90s, and then they moved from an AS400 to a LAN. And the AS400 guys didn't want to have anything to do with the PCs and the LAN and the exchange server that was literally sitting in a box on a counter needing to be set up. And so they turned to me and they said, do you want to do it? And so that was my first full-time IT job. And I did IT for 
I mean, years uh, until 2011 when I ended up going full time into security. So that's how I kind of got to here with doing desktop support, server support, network support, and managing all of those people and just getting very lucky at a very good time to move into IT. Lucky is the probably the easiest word to use, but I think it's probably much more complex than that. I'm amazed just at the breadth of individuals that we have joined this show, and each of them, we spend time on their their past, because I think it's important for the listener, both the established CISO, but those that want to become one, but maybe even those that have been one, that are sort of thinking about what do I do after I'm a CISO? Right. What could my world become after that or as an adjunct to that? And uh, I think you're one of the perfect guests for that. And, and covering a little of your past, I think, is fascinating. What was wrong? Not a security question, but what was wrong between London and L.A.? To many, those are wonderful cities and that seem to be just not for you. Well, yeah, it was just that sort of weird situational thing where in Britain, I don't know about now, but then most degrees were three year degrees. I somehow ended up doing a four-year degree, which I didn't even know was a four-year degree until I started doing it. And so by the time I got to London, most of my friends had already been established for a year and, you know, they had jobs that they'd like that they'd been in and everything was all sort of sorted. And, you know, from the outside, sometimes you can feel unsettled when other people look very settled, whether they are or not, you just think they are. And I didn't have the job that I had wanted very much. I didn't get it. I kind of got second interviews for everything and I didn't get the job I wanted. And I got a job that I didn't enjoy. And I, you know, I just didn't feel like it was the right time and place. And my brother was living in LA, still lives in LA, and he was in the movie business. And he said, come over here to LA and um, you know, I'll get you in the movie business. So I'm like, wow, how exciting. So I went over to LA, which is flat and hot. And you know, unless you're a movie star or a movie producer, you really are worth less than nothing, as far as I could tell. And I was in my early 20s. You know, you're not really, you don't necessarily have the best fully formed opinions on things at that age. And I just, I just couldn't stand it. I, I didn't like it at all. And I took myself on vacation to Club Med, having been there for two whole months. And the guy running it was English. And he said, well, come back and work here. So I did. And that was that. <laughs> That's fantastic. I think that having the freedom at that age or being being free enough in the mind to say, all right, I don't like this. This isn't what I want. You know, I look back on that and I'm to that and wish I had done more of that. I'm envious a bit. But I think that's something that we can still do. We just sometimes choose not to, which it sounds like something you've, you've kept that. If something doesn't feel right, you sort of move or, or create something new. You know, I think I was very lucky. I had relatively supportive parents. My father said he didn't really mind what I did as long as I was good at it. And I think my mother just chose to ignore the fact that I got to work at Club Med. But I think, you know, you have, you have really good opportunities in your early 20s to go off and do things before you have external influences that, that mean that maybe you have to work somewhere a little more standard or a little more regular. And then again, at kind of closer to the end of your career, I don't have children, but if I had children, they probably would have been more or less grown up by now. You know, you can kind of say, well, maybe now is the time that I don't necessarily go and work at Club Med, but do the equivalent something where I kind of do what I choose to do. Right. Well, and it, something else you said, which is kind of interesting, and, and maybe this is a little uncouth, but uh, you mentioned where everybody gets sort of settled and you feel like a little bit of an outsider. 
I smiled and this is how my brain works. I was like, you know, it, it's as if you've shown up to the party an hour or two late when everyone's been drinking and you're, and you haven't been, and everyone's already a mess. And you're like, this conversation is terrible. Like I am, I, I can't. So I, I kind of just smile at that in a, a very strange way. I, I don't know what, what brought that to my mind. Maybe the listeners will appreciate that strange uh, analogy, but another parallel that I find fascinating you worked at a collections agency. So I was the only IT person for a collections company very earlier in my career and doing very basic support for the land and exchange and, you know, SQL and exchange. It just, it was a dreadful place. I'm grateful for the opportunity, but I had to smile also. It was a car parts warehouse of uh, foreign auto parts and having, I, I was very lucky that they gave me the job. I mean, I went there as a temp and I will always tell people if they're out of work, go and temp somewhere because I was offered jobs in most of the places I went to temp at because you, know, you just need to meet somebody. You just need to get in the door. So I went there, I got in the door and they said, we want to hire you. I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe it. And they said, how much money do you want to get paid? I went, I said, I want $33,000. <laughs> so more or less plucked it out of my head. And they said, okay, but I had to do collections. And the thing is, is I, I think just sort of far too literal to do stuff like that. You'd call people and you'd say, you owe money and we're not going to send you any more parts until you pay the money. And that seemed to be perfectly practical and sensible. And, you know, and of course, that's not how it works. You know, you have to make a deal and you have to negotiate. And those are skills I learned much later on in my career. And they're very important also for being a CISO. But back then, I just had no clues. I had quite a lot of angry salespeople. So you move on and you're now there's this there's a similar inflection kind of going on right now where there's the you know you're talking about the AS400 folks versus LAN and there's something similar going on now which is sort of you know on-prem to cloud kind of a, a similar kind of transition that's not a new one but it's I'd say we're probably 50% through it but you mentioning that is another sort of reminder to the listener of the kind of opportunities where if you want to jump in, you know, you were in a position where no one wanted to touch this land stuff and the exchange server was sitting in a box and you just had enough want to or no fear of failure or I don't know what was in your mind, but it was a great thing that you jumped on that. And you learned, I'm guessing, a whole hell of a lot very quickly. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing like learning on the job, is there? I mean, one of the experiences I had when I went to work at Equifax was me and the, the guy I worked with. We were told, listen, we have to be PCI compliant and ISO compliant within the next year. We don't know how to do it. You don't know how to do it, but you have to go do it. And we just went and did it. And ultimately, if you don't expect that anyone is going to give you the answer, but you need to get to the end of it, you just figure out how to get your own answers. And I think that that experience of having to be relatively self-sufficient because there was nobody to ask was a great experience. And it doesn't mean that you shouldn't hope that there's somebody that can help you or a mentor or, or a Google. You know, this is kind of pre-Google. But just having that keenness to get answers yourself, I think, is a valuable skill. So let's unpack that. I completely agree. And I'm also from the era where there was no Google. Uh, in fact, if you go back far enough, there were you might have had a book, maybe. I had dial-up AOL. I, I was proud of it. Hey, yeah, we all, well, some of us, some of us had the CDs. and The, <laughs> the yeah. endless CDs. Yeah, for the, for the updates. But how, you talk about self-sufficiency. I mean, I think that's a skill that a lot of people have a challenge developing. And I think 
as you want to move into security and security leadership, it's something that should be table stakes. You know, you you have to be comfortable with being self-sufficient in many ways, but also as part of that, if the answers aren't there for you, you're going to be wrong sometimes. So maybe what is your sort of view of that? Or what do you think made, it seems like you've been very good at being self-sufficient in life. Why do you think that is with you? And what advice would you have for others in trying to cultivate that? Well, I did have a great manager at one point who I was working at MBNA and it was it was a fantastic company and they moved everybody around a lot. And I moved to Atlanta and I was working this for this guy and he was very ambitious for himself and very ambitious for everyone that worked for him, right? So he kind of made you do things. And I moved up to this new office in Atlanta and he said, okay, Laura, I need you to go and do something. And it was like ship boxes to somewhere or something. I said, well, uh, you know, where are the boxes? Where is the shipping? How do I do this? He goes, you know, if I was going to do it all myself, I would have done it all myself. I'm asking you to do it. So go and figure it out. <laughs> and, you know, I think that's really fair. You know, and delegating is a tough skill. And um, actually, probably delegates is one of the things I find hardest to do because I do find it very easy. I know I can get things done. And, and I also, by that same token, very much know what I what I don't know. And so when I'm working with clients, if they say, hey, can you, you know, dweezle the wibbly wobbly and make it do something different? If I can't, I'm going to say, no, I can't do that. Because if it's sort of completely outside of my skill set and it would take me too long to do it and they're paying me by the hour, you know, I'm just not, I'm just not going to do it. It's not worth it for either of us. If it's something that I think I can figure out pretty quickly, I'll say, I don't know, but I'll figure it out pretty quickly. And I think, um, I think being very truthful about your abilities and very upfront with people about whether you can or can't do something is, it's just efficient, really, isn't it? Um, and being self-sufficient means sorting it out for yourself, which is also efficient. <laughs> so I don't know. I'm just practical, I think. Well, I, I think you, you, you kind of covered another interesting point, which is truthfulness about abilities. And in your current role, you have that relationship with the client, which again, this is sort of post post regular corporate job. Now you are a you know a ringer to help other organizations to help. I would say that in a, in a kind way, and and as an expert on certain things to get difficult problems solved. And part of that being aware enough of how well you know how self sufficient am I as a team of one, how truthful can I be on my abilities, and then articulating that to the client to say, it's probably worth it if you pay me to solve this problem, because I can probably solve it faster than you can presently. Or the inverse, you know what, that's not what I'm great at. And I think that is a very difficult place to get to say, you know what, I might want the money, or I might not. But I'm not great at this. Like I, It is not efficient for you to give me this task. No, and also it becomes unpleasant to do the work. I mean, the part of what I like about my job, and of course, you know, in anything anybody does, even if you're doing it effectively on a purely sort of voluntary, I use that word loosely, but, you know, I choose to work with the clients I, I choose to work with, and it's a sort of mutual choice. Um, so it's not quite the same as when you have a job and you're a little bit tied in sometimes, but it isn't fun for me to struggle with something a great deal. I do like a challenge, but I don't particularly like a struggle. If there's no real point for me doing it, um, I mean, here's an example. I get asked a lot, as do all security people, what do you know about privacy? And my answer is that privacy and security are not the same things. It's not my answer. It is the answer. 
um, they are very much connected and there is a significant amount of overlap, but they get conflated together and they're not the same thing. And I am not a privacy expert and it's not worth your time me going and trying to learn how to be a privacy expert. I have other people you can talk to. You know, it just doesn't, it just doesn't make sense. And I would, I, I would be really upset if I gave them bad information. Do you think that is the questions about privacy seemingly are coming from people that you already have a relationship with? Do you find that that there's a great also a great need for privacy help or do you think it's an equal need to security help or is it half of? I mean, I'm just curious at this because they trust you is why they're asking, hey, solve this other problem for me. Do you do you find that it's there's just as great of a need as for privacy help? I think there are different pressures that come down for that. So obviously, if you're an organization that if you're an American organization, there's some new privacy stuff that's bubbling up with CCPA and that kind of thing. But if you're an organization that's doing business in Australia or the EU or somewhere like that, you know, you've, you've been getting all these contracts requiring you to do all these things for a while now. So it, it's external pressure for everything. And typically there's external pressure for security as well, but it's coming in possibly from things like cyber insurance policies they're, they're you know they're getting these things going are you doing this patching segmentation whatever it might be and i think some of the privacy pressure comes after the security pressure I, it seems to me a little bit plus i think they get some input on that from from their legal teams or their external legal people but obviously they are asking their security person because these two things seem to get combined more often than i feel they should I would agree to that. I was just mainly curious, and you answered it well, of just kind of the, the difference there. And I, for one, wouldn't. Privacy is a whole other monster, and it's you have to be aware of it. And in many organizations, you I know CISOs that own both. Uh, I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to either. <laughs> I'm always amazed by the people that do, and impressed and thrilled for them. And also, I think from a career choice, you know, I think if you have the ability to go off and be you know, CPO or something like that. That's fantastic. Oh, no doubt. Possibly. I don't know if necessarily less frightening than being a CISO, but it's a very specific skill. And actually, I was chatting to a friend of mine who's also long course time been a colleague, and she was saying, do you think I should stick with security or privacy? <laughs> I said, actually, I think you should do privacy because there's something kind of interestingly intellectual about it as well. And you spend a lot of time working with legal, a lot of time working with the business, which I think is an interesting place to be possibly less time working with IT, not that that makes it more or less interesting. It's just sort of a factual thing. But maybe it's it's a, just a slightly different mindset, I think. I've looked at it, and I, I think it's an interesting point. Maybe this is a, a, a little off, but, you know, there's not the 24-hour, you could still have a privacy event that happens off hours, and I, I'm not trying to say or discount that, but you don't have as much IT responsibility, meaning the infrastructure required to support a CISO uh, is often shared and owned with IT or is part of IT. You have systems and servers that need updated. Your budget is huge. There's this overhead. There's typically a 24-hour monitoring element to it. Privacy often doesn't have that. Sometimes they have hooks in the DLP and that sort of stuff. But So there's not that 24-7 pressure. The teams are typically not as large. Uh, they interface typically, in many cases, as you said, more with the business or have visibility and relationships, sometimes not reporting through a CIO. And they're often paid as much 
sometimes more, depending on the environment, depending on the size of the company. So you, you're, the bad day factor is there's much less exposure. So I find that you're the first guest we've had in over 80 episodes that have brought that up of, you know, should I stay as CISO or should I consider CPO? And I've, we've never talked about that. So I find that I like that topic. I like that. I personally wouldn't just because of my preference of what I like to work on. But there's days in my past where I was like, damn it, I should have worked in privacy. No, I mean, I agree. I don't think I could make the switch to privacy. I mean, I probably could. I don't think I particularly, I necessarily want to. But I mean, I was just working with somebody yesterday who I had brought into a client as the privacy person. And she's just genius. You know, she's just brilliant. And, and you know, I thinking, well, I couldn't do that. I mean, but, but the thing is, I'm doing the same thing in security. You know, I, I am very comfortable where I am with what I'm doing with my client base with security. So there is a question now when you get to, you know, a certain age and a certain sort of freedom time in your life, what to move to. But I don't think it's privacy. I think I'll go and, I don't know, write a book on the history of Henry VIII or something completely different. <laughs> Just go completely different. That is, I, I thought you were going to say you're going to write a book about something security related. They don't, nobody needs more books on security and I don't even know who's reading them. <laughs> I used to, and I don't so much anymore. It's more reports and PDFs and shorter form things. Exactly. The information changes so often. I mean, by the time you get a book out, uh, presumably everything is effectively out of date. So, But didn't that used to be just a wonderful flex, though, to have you're an author, right? Yeah, I thought that was a big deal. I read an awful lot of books. I don't mind that I haven't written one. I'd like to, but it wouldn't be about security. I read a lot of books. I think none of them have been about security. Maybe one. No, that's I, I'm very much the same way. I've also fallen into a trap lately where I'm where I buy books and then don't read them. <gasps> no, that's terrible. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, tell me about it. It's embarrassing. You mentioned Henry VIII. There's a musical that's out that's pretty big. The Six Wives of. Oh, fun. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I was forced to go in New York recently, and uh, it was extremely well done. But not my not my cup of tea, as some may say. But uh, you reminded me of that. You have to expose yourself to different things once in a while. I do, only for the benefit of knowing that I definitely don't want any more of what that is. Right? No, it's extremely well done. And to those that may have seen it or are thinking about it, it's if if that's your thing, it's very well done. But um, you, your Henry the Eighth reference brought me to that. I think that to cover a little more, you moved into security in 2011. You were talking more about that global risk. You tackled a bunch of PCI and ISO certifications and, and this sorts of thing. But after that, I think that sort of shot you into the opportunity at Sephora. What did you do there? So at Sephora, I was the, uh, the head of information security. So I managed to talk them up from a security architecture position to something that I actually wanted to do. And uh, so this is Sephora Americas. And so they, you know, I don't know, 500 stores, something like that umpteen thousand uh, point of sale machines in several different countries. And it was interesting. Working working in retail is very interesting. I've, I've been, I've, funnily enough, I had a bunch of years in the credit industry because I worked at MBA, which is a credit card company. And then I was IT director at a credit card counseling service. And then I went to work at Equifax. So I'd been in the credit arena for a long, long time. So then working in retail was an interesting transition. And, you know, it's one of those things where the goal of the machine working is to sell a lipstick. So you're not saving lives or anything, but 
you know, there's it, it, there's a lot of money in it, and the people working there care very deeply about everything. And they hadn't really had a security person there. And the thing about security people, and we know this is security people, is quite often you are telling IT that they need to do things that they don't want to do, whether they can't or don't want to, or don't have the people to, or whatever the reason is, it can be quite a battle. And it was a fantastic experience, but it was a fairly constant battle. Just because, you know, it, it was it was shifting culture and a culture change is always incredibly hard. It is, especially when it sounds like you were the first hire and you are introducing extra ideas and process that they were, especially IT, they were free of this prior to, right? Maybe just for fun, if you would, how did you convince, because I always love these moments and I, for the listeners, I think they really like this. So you were, you applied to, or were asked to apply for a head of architecture position? No, it was just, it was just a security architect role. And I said, well, who's it going to report to? And they said, well, all the way down here. And I said, well, I would do, I don't want to do that. Well, I mean, so how did you negotiate to that? Like, how did you, like, that's my point that that's where I wanted, if there's something you said, no, I don't want to do that, but it had to been larger than that. Or was it just that simple? You're like, no, I'm not doing that. It was relatively simple. I mean, I was meeting with the CIO at the time and uh, he was fantastic and very, very clever and amusing and interesting guy. And when I went out to go and meet him, obviously I'd had a couple of interviews, several interviews over the phone. And I think they just had a really hard time finding somebody. I mean, security people are never that easy to find. There's not that many of them. And I think they were looking for someone that would be a decent fit. And Outside of IT, Sephora is mostly run by women. So I think they kind of quite like the idea of possibly having a woman on board. So I think for him, I was a good candidate when I got there. And also, I wasn't entirely a pushover in the interview. And I, and I think I have had people tell me I'm not necessarily the archetypal security person, not that I think maybe there is one. I think just people think there is one, and I'm not it. And I, I was in a relatively senior role at Equifax. So for me, I said, you know, if you want me to come over and work here and relocate from Georgia to California, you know, you're going to have to pay me some decent money and I'm not going to take the position at this position. So, uh, you know, I've sort of report directly to you or, you know, or I, I don't think it's a good idea. And he didn't seem to have any problem with that. So I was quite amazed. I'm not normally, <laughs> I'm not normally that uh, pushy. So your collections experience helped you in that moment. Maybe it was like, here it is, take it or leave it. I mean, it wasn't quite that, but I mean, it's essentially what it boiled down to. And, you know, we, we figured out the money right there and then, and we figured out that it would report to him. And he said, you know, we'll make it a whatever director role or something, which was great because better relocation package, all that kind of stuff, which I didn't know, but that was, you know, added benefit. But I, you know, I think a lot of other, other, and this is one of the things I wish I'd been better at over the course of time is things like negotiating salary, things like negotiating, you know, benefits and relocation. Some people are just really good at it. And some people, especially, you know, English people were always terribly polite, you know, heaven forbid, we might actually say, could you do better? And I think women also typically aren't as good at asking what they want, or applying for roles they don't think they're good enough to apply for. Like it's all these, this is not, you know, me making it up. This is also statistics, right? It would be great if there were more people kind of doing, uh, I'm sure they're out there, Saying, listen, here is what you just need to ask, and you know it's the old expression: if you if you never ask, it's it's always a no. Right. Well, yeah, correct. And uh, and to your earlier point, as virtue of the statistics, and it's very well proven, there is a 
in general sense, and I know that it, this is a sensitive topic, but I believe this to be true, there is a likability index or score that's aligned to gender. And typically, and again, I, I, if I speak out of line, I'm not trying to offend anyone who's listening, but likability is typically higher in women. And that likability score tends to hurt during negotiation because they say, well, this is the offer. And they say, well, this is the, you know, the, the internal sort of monologue as well. This must be what the best they can do. And this is a good opportunity and I should take this and this is good. Whereas typically many people, often men or those that are less likable on that likability score. So setting gender out for a second, if you're less likable in that, is it related to that? I'm talking, I'm not talking about likability in the general sense. I think it's that you want to be liked. Correct. Yes. You want to be likable. And you're likely to say, no, wait a minute, I'm better than that. And your other point, uh, that's just salary alone. And, and often, and when you look at groups that are paid differently, that's the, often the start of it. That's the beginning. That's the genesis of this issue. And the other thing is, and this I think is even a bigger issue, and this affects everyone, but often the female leaders I speak to is, you know, the, the whole thing of a being nervous about applying to a job that's maybe bigger than their experiences and not remembering for anybody, you know, if it's, if you're a fit for the job, it's the wrong job. If you're a perfect fit, it's the wrong damn job. It's the one you're already in probably. You're damn right. Yeah, exactly. And I, and I do, and it, I had read that and actually I was, I was very pleased with myself because I think somebody had posted on some something. I don't know what to do. You know, I'm trying to apply for all these jobs and everyone's telling me I'm overqualified and what should I do? And I think I had just read some article somewhere. I said, apply for the jobs you don't think you're even remotely qualified for, because that's what all the men are doing. And she did. And she goes, it's amazing. They all, want, they all, and you know, it wasn't, it was, it was just me channeling something I'd already read. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't me coming up with the idea at all. But I, although if I was a man, I would have just taken credit for that, just so we're clear. Uh, so, um, but it, it wasn't me at all. But, but I said, men, you know, that was sent her the link to this thing that, you know, men will apply for jobs that they think they're only 50% qualified for, and women will apply for jobs that they think they're 80 or 90% qualified for. And we should, you know, I, that's our fault. We need to fix that. And so she did. And then, you know, she got, instead of being told she was overqualified, she got a job that was, you know, a challenge. And I think that's what we should all hope for a little bit is a job that's going to stretch us. Correct. And that's, that's the, the, the challenge part, uh, I think is a big piece. It's, it's going to allow us collectively hopefully to grow, uh, unless it's a, you know, a bad job, which, which we talk about a lot on the show too, where we might stretch into the job that we want or should have, but maybe don't ask enough questions. There's a lot of CISOs that get in that are like, oh, I didn't ask enough questions going in. It was a good job and the pay was right and negotiated, but oh boy, there was these sort of landmines. There's always landmines. There's always a reason the person left that left. Oh yeah. How we have, why is this opportunity available? Why this job seems suspiciously great. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, the the point, and I'd be, I'd like to know your your thought on this of how you'd modify or maybe change this question. But one of them is is what's one thing that the person who filled this position prior to me failed at? You know, what's the what did they not do well? And to see what everyone says. Would you modify that or ask? What's another question you'd ask going in? Ooh. That is a good question. I do think I, I like the idea of asking what the previous person didn't do well at, because even if they didn't 
particularly leave under a cloud, you know, it's good to know what those people would like from their ideal candidate, whether you agree with it or not. You're not, it's very tricky to ask in an interview, you know, what problems are there because they're not going to tell you because you're probably not under an NDA or they don't want to know. So it is hard to find that out. And gosh, I don't know how. I mean, I do ask when I'm talking to clients right now to, you know, see if there's a fit and see if we all want to work together. I do say, is there anything you're really worried about right now? And hopefully they'll tell me. I'm more than not they will, but if there are areas of concern. So this is perfect. I was going to say, let's mock interview here, but I, which I've done before and it, it catches people off guard. But I think the way we transition to that is, so, you, so for five and a half years, you've been doing this VCSO thing. And early on, maybe we can spend a second about, look, maybe they're not large enough to have a full-time CISO. Maybe they had a CISO and they did a, you know, maybe they're in a, in a transition. There's a lot of reasons why somebody might need one. And you've been doing it now, again, for five and a half years. Let's talk about that interview that happens, so to speak, right? You've got to go in and figure out, you know, you're at a point in your career where it's cool to say no, like you're not going to take a bad gig. So you need to pressure test this new opportunity. You want it to be fun and good and rewarding and hopefully lucrative or, or fulfilling for everybody. So how do you go in and ask? You, you kind of nicely said it in a very nice and proper sort of English way. What would you say? Like, what, what are you evaluating to see if you're if you are a fit to be their VC so? Well, I think most of them, I mean, I think I have kind of, you know, bread and butter work, which is the same kind of pattern of a small organization that has a security need, whether it's compliance or just, you know, customer, there's usually a third party forcing something on onto them, right? So they have a security need, they know what they want to get to, they, you know, it's usually something like SOC 2 or PCR and ISO or something. They can't justify a full-time CISO, and I absolutely understand that. I mean, even if they could find one, is it justified? Or is it better spent, you know, getting one and a half developers or whatever it might be? So I do ask them uh, what their technology stack is. I do ask them, you know, what kind of industry they're in. I mean, I was speaking to somebody the other day who was referred to me by a GRC tool that I work with, and they're all doing, you know, Web 3.0. And I just said, listen, I'm just not going to understand any of it. <laughs> so there's really no point. Yeah, and they go, well, we do most of the stuff we do is pretty basic, pretty normal. But I knew it wouldn't be, and I knew it would be very quick before I got, you know, out of my depth with understanding all of the blockchain pieces, which I've sort of actively chosen just to not get too involved in. There's other people that are going to be much better at it than me, and so I, you know, are they working in a technology I can understand? Are they working in an industry which, even if I haven't worked with, you know, it makes sense to me and I understand? Are they looking to do a, maybe a compliance framework that I am comfortable with, or is the one they want to do close enough to ones that I've done? You know, it's just a sort of fairly basic discussion. And thus far, I've, I've had a couple of duds, but funnily enough, sort of ones that didn't really come from most of them personal referrals as well. So it just, you know, it just works once you get started, once you get rolling. And if you do a decent job for your clients, they will give you more clients. Absolutely. And I think that's uh, the referral piece uh are the referrals typically good i mean you gotta be careful answering this i guess because there's they might be listening but i mean are they if you get a referral is it typically good business just out of ignorance i'm asking yes because i think probably um they're probably going to be in related field because you know i've got for example a bunch of kind of healthcare organizations in in the northeast of america and they suppose they talk to each other so they probably know roughly what kind of cost is involved they probably you know, have a similar goal. 
And so, you know, you at least going in, there's a lot of overlap that is similar. But then again, this past year, I've had several referrals, just completely kind of cold referrals that have come because I'm working in a GRC, couple of GRC tools, and they've got me on their partner list. So people completely out of the blue reaching out to me. And they've been great. So, you know, I think it's just making sure that when you take somebody on that you can help them, because if you can't, it's going to very quickly go sour. Correct. And I I think that the other thing, speaking of avoiding sourness, and again, this is out of a question out of ignorance, the questions you were asking were industry tech stack, you know, are they looking to do a compliance framework that you have familiarity with and, and can, you know, sort of immediately add value. But how do you structure, and and this is something that when you're a full-time CISO, you've got a typically some element of risk or a fiduciary sort of element where you have signing powers to do certain things or you're signing off on certain elements of risk. You're you're, you're involved in in many, you know, if there's some sort of process to sort of, you know, approve of change and these sorts of things. How do these companies, how do you ride that line? How do you deal with with sort of the legal risk or or defining what you will do or not do? And then do these organizations typically in general have someone else that's that has the official title CISO because they're required to have it? Like, how do you split the the legal risk from the responsibility of what's needed to be done internally to these companies? How educate me on that because I'm I'm not sure how do you line that out safely? So Obviously, as as a non-employee, I can't really, you know, I can't sign off on anything. But uh, just legally speaking, I do have errors and omissions insurance. I do have some paragraphs in my in my MSAs, which you know really say I effectively, if, whether they stand up in court, who knows? But effectively, I am not responsible for your compliance. You know, there are things that you can't control, especially when you're not there full time. You can't, you're not embedded in every meeting. You're not there every day. You're there when you know when you're there. But I do work very actively with whoever it is in the organization. And it might be the CIO, it might be CEO, it might be COO. You know, typically one of those people are in my meetings. And if there's risk that needs to be accepted or discussed, you know, they need to be in that. And so they are very much shining off on that. And typically from a policy standpoint, the policies will say something like somebody's nominated the information security officer and it's not me. But they kind of delegate out the pieces to me. You know, they delegate out the work to me effectively. And I would never say that I'm providing, you know, better information than a legal person can. I think it's one of those. Uh, sorry, uh, from the standpoint of the legality of it all, it's just important for for the business to know that they have to accept the risk. And it's not the junior IT person. It's somebody with a C in their name who's on the board that has to accept the risk, and that I am there to help facilitate getting to where they need to be. And it, it seems to work out. I mean, I, I you know, th- th- they can fire me just like they can fire anybody else and I can fire them. And I, I don't know. I think when bad things happen, you just help to the greatest extent possible. And they know that the, you have helped to the greatest extent possible to avoid those bad things happening. And I think I'm not sure of a virtual CISO yet, touch wood, and I'm literally touching wood, who's been involved in a situation where someone has come after them because I'm not sure that they would necessarily be able to if they hadn't gone to take the step of having a full-time employee in that role. Yeah, it just, it seems like a, one of the things I'd like to explore on this show in particular is people making transitions in their life, right? And whether you're trying to become a security person, maybe you're trying to become a security 
uh, leader, kind of in a full-time form, a manager, director, maybe one day a CISO, certainly giving advice to existing CISOs from sort of the, the voice of the guest. But along with that, as we have this career arc, maybe those that, hey, you've worked full-time at a, at a regular job, what is after being in that regular job? Maybe you want to work on your own. Maybe you want to have your own one-person shop like you have. And so covering this, this seemed like a very natural question. It wasn't meant to be tricky, but I've often wondered it. And for the benefit of the listener, I think that there's many leaders out there that are thinking, hey, like, maybe this is a model I want to follow. And just having that, uh, you know, write, write the contract well, set expectations, have E&O insurance, you know, and maybe that's, that's enough. I was just curious. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, you know, there's there's a there's a VC so Slack channel, and you know there's there's people coming in there every week going, I've hung up my uh, CISO business card, and I'm now coming to do this. And that's a lot of reasons why they want to do it. I mean, it is not an easy job being in charge of information security as a full time person. You know, it's not an easy job. You're constantly fighting battles. You're sometimes in a position where they don't really want a security person. They've just been told they have to have one. And, you know, you can try and spin it to a marketing advantage in some cases, but otherwise it's a remarkably thankless job. And then something bad goes wrong and the CISO gets lambasted, even though probably IT didn't do something that they, the CISO had been asking them to do for years. And that's normally what happens. And it's the way of the world. And so it's unsurprising that people say, I think I want to work in a little bit, possibly less stressful environment, uh, possibly less money, possibly more money, but possibly more control over who I work with and how I do the work. And I think, especially as you get a little bit older, you just, I can't, I can't bother to fight the battles anymore the, of the full-time battles. We've got a, just a handful of questions more. We're, we're approaching time. I've got one more general sense uh, question before we close out. And that's just in general. Not to be a negative, but I, I, it often yields a colorful answer is, what do you think is the sort of the worst thing about our industry? You were just talking about it's often thankless, but I, I would, I, I sometimes, I'll take that. That's to me not the worst. Uh, what do you think is, is the, the biggest sort of negative that we have and maybe something we can do about it? I think there have historically been quite a lot of negative security people that have, I mean, certainly I worked with one. We worked with a group where you had to fax them your requests, and about three weeks later, they faxed you a no. And you know, that kind of thing was a long time ago, but you don't forget that. So it's trying to spin around these expectations and kind of cartoon images of security people being the no person uh, and trying to slightly win hearts and minds um, with the business because we've got to work with the businesses. Business has got to pay for us, business has got to pay for IT. IT accepts sometimes in a disgruntled way that they have to work with us, but we have to do better. And I think we haven't necessarily always done a great job. We have to do better to, to get involved with all of the departments other than IT so that they can understand why we're asking them to do what we're asking them to do. And by that same token, understand what they do. Because if we just sit in a little world where we say, you know, thou, mu you know, thou must patch, end of story, you know, that's not helping us. And so I think we've done it to ourselves a little bit along the course of time of, of not being collaborative. I think that's an excellent approach and a great perspective to kind of look back and think, you know, have we had 20 or 30 years of grumpy security people and how do we act a little more, you know, up our customer service? 
I think to that end, we're, we're approaching the end of the show, and I want to close with a question we uh, close with each show, and that's pursuant to the name of our show, uh, the new CISO, I'll modify it a little bit here. Uh, what does being a new VCISO mean to you, Laura? So I think it means it's a chance to be pragmatic and to enable the business. The businesses I work with, it, it is, as I said before, it's, it, this is a mutual choice for us both to work together. And you need to build relationships and you need to enable that business because if you don't, they will only ever hate you. <laughs> and who wants that? Right. So, you know, if someone was going, if someone was having their first job as a VC, so, you know, you, it, it's challenging because you've got to dive in because you're not there every day. You've got to dive in when you're in that meeting and really show your worth because you only show your worth, you know, a few hours a week or a month versus every day. And so by doing that, it, you're, you do that most effectively by building relationships with the people you're working with, I think. Wonderful perspective. Laura, a podcast natural. Thank you so much for your time today. Well, thank you so much. It was a great pleasure talking to you. That is it for this episode of the new CISO. Thank you for listening. Check out more episodes on xbeam.com forward slash podcast. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to get brand new episodes first.